Let's pray together. God, you are the great God, and we stand in awe of you. You are the one true God. And all other things, deities, entities that might claim to be God on the last day will actually bow the knee to you and speak what is true, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we look forward to that day. We look forward to the day when we will be fully and finally redeemed and brought into the kingdom and we will stand in judgment but no longer guilty for our sins, no longer condemned, but set free because of all that Christ has done for us. And we thank you that you are the God who became man like us so that you might redeem us out of our sin and out of evil and out of death. And we worship you for that. And I pray this morning that as we think on Christ, that our hearts would be encouraged and filled with joy and hope and peace at who you are and all that you have done for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, hopefully you've already uh, turned to Colossians. We are in our Advent series leading up to Christmas, if that isn't already obvious. And uh, in this time that we like to do every year, kind of leading up to Christmas, we just have an opportunity to reflect on who Christ is and all that he has done for us. And really, is there any more worthwhile thing that we could do together as a church or as Christians than simply think about Jesus? That may sound a little cliche, but Philippians 4 tells us whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And doesn't that describe Jesus for us? That's Christ, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of our praise. And so what a blessing then it is for us to gather together and think together about the glory of Jesus Christ and his excellency. So last week I tried hard to help us understand that this baby born to Mary called Jesus was in fact truly and fully man, truly and fully human like you and I. My goal was to help us see that when he stood there weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, we were getting an incredible look at the humanity of Jesus. Jesus who truly took on our grief and bore our sorrows. And so the point was last week to say that in worshiping Jesus Christ, we are adoring him for the true humanity that he has, like you or like I. And why then he can relate to us in our frail condition, because he knows, he experienced it, he went through it. But to say that Jesus was truly or fully man is certainly not to say all that there is to say about Jesus, of course, because the wonder of Christmas is the wonder of this idea that actually Jesus is also fully God. This is the incarnation. The eternal God over all of creation entered into this creation as a man. As another preacher once said, the infinite 
has become the infant. And so even as we say that Jesus is fully man, we must also acknowledge that Jesus is fully God. And we need to hold both of these truths together, paradoxical though they may be. Jesus is not part man and part God. He is 100% man and 100% God, not mixed in his nature like some hybrid mutant of God and man all mashed together into something altogether different from man or God, but two natures fully contained in one perfect unity, divine and eternal God-man. And you might wonder, well, why does this even matter? Isn't that a question? Like if we talk about the nature of Jesus as fully God and fully man, what does it even matter? Well, it matters, first of all, because it's true and that's what the Bible teaches and therefore the truth is important for its own sake. But it also matters because the truth about the full humanity and full deity of Jesus brings us both comfort and also confidence. See, if Jesus is only man just like you, then maybe he could offer us some comfort in our suffering because he knows our experience, but we could have no confidence that he could actually rescue us out of that if he was merely an only man. And if Jesus is only God, then we might find some confidence in his power, yes, but we would have no comfort that he could represent us before God in order to bear our sins. So in the fullness of Jesus as both God and man, we find comfort that our God knows our hardships, and we also find confidence that he can lift us out of that suffering. This is why Isaiah 7.14 calls Jesus Emmanuel. As maybe you know, that word means God with us, because Jesus is the God who is with us and even like us as man. And although this is a difficult subject, like I, I think last week and this week, I'm, I'm pressing you guys to think deeply about who our God is in the person of Christ. But don't let the beauty of this be lost on you. Don't let this become commonplace in the way that you think about our God. While remaining fully God, Jesus became man so that he could save us out of our sin and our misery and death. So imagine with me for a moment this newborn baby Jesus, who we celebrate at Christmas, given this name Jesus, which essentially means God saves, by Mary and Joseph in obedience to the command of the angel, he lays there in his mother's arms, being nursed like every other child, like you were when you were an infant. And he is tenderly laid to sleep like newborn babies need do. And he is, in every sense, a real human child, like you, like me. But he is also so unlike you and me, because he is so much more. So I want you to try and like just... Imagine in your mind this scene, the baby Jesus held by his mother shortly after his birth as we read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 together. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is a rich and dense passage of scripture that reveals to us who we are really looking at as we look at Christ the child in the arms of his mother Mary. Yes, this baby boy will grow to be the man that we know so well from the Gospels as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and we hear about his ministry. But even here, at the beginning, at his birth, even before his birth, at his miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is God in the flesh. And all that was true of this God from eternity past, before the foundations of the world, remains true of him even here, even now, as he is this baby in the stable, surrounded by barn animals, wrapped up in swaddling clothes, as a totally codependent newborn child. It is true that Jesus, who was the eternal God and one with the Father, became an infant and a human like you and like me, but in doing so, you must understand he did not become anything less than God. He remained fully God. So here I want to outline for you, believe it or not, I'm going to try and do nine truths from this passage that we can understand about Jesus as God. And, uh, I have some slides that'll help you kind of stay with me. And the fact of the matter is, each one of these points could be a sermon of its own. But I have not tried to make nine sermons this morning, okay? So this will be a brief overview of these points. First, as I've already repeatedly said, Jesus is God. Verse 15 is very clear on this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what the invisible God is like? Well, you can look upon his son Jesus and you can begin to understand. And notice that the verse does not say that Jesus was the image of God. The verse does not say that Jesus became the image of God. The verb here is a present active indicative verb, which is to say that Jesus is and always will be the image of God because he is eternal God. He is the great I am. He is the one who is. Even as he lays cradled in Mary's arms in those first precious moments after his birth, totally helpless as a human child, Jesus is the revelation of God. And we will see as we get a bit further into verse 19, in this child, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, maybe you remember the Ten Commandments and you know that uh, the beginning of those Ten Commandments, God makes very clear that man shall make no image of God. 
right? Man shall have no idols, nothing made to image this God who is the eternal invisible God. God expressly forbids the creation of anything that might represent him on earth, which makes it then all the more shocking that this God himself would choose to place his exact image into this creation that he made. This creation that could not possibly contain him in all of his majesty, he chooses to place his image in the person of Jesus Christ. Not with some stone statue or wooden idol, but in true human flesh. So that if you have looked upon Jesus and you have known him as the Christ, then you have also seen and known God. When the text tells us in verse 15 that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, it is only further asserting this truth that Christ is one with the Father. Now, contrary to what the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses would claim, those heretical cultists, this phrase does not mean that Jesus was the first thing that God created. We're going to deal with that more in a second. When it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, what it means is that Jesus has all of the rights of the firstborn son. In the world of the Bible, in the Jewish history that is behind uh, the Gospels, what we find is that the firstborn is the privileged heir of the father. The firstborn carries on all of the dignity and all of the sovereignty over the family that the father has. In other words, by saying that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, this phrase is claiming that Jesus is equal to God. So that there's no confusion about this phrase, it's followed with our second truth about Christ. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is not a created being. He is not like angels. He is not like you. He's not like animals. He's not made in any way. He is eternal God. Verse 16 tells us that by him all things were created. Not material things merely, things that are visible like earth and sun and galaxies. Not merely the things of substance as we know it in this universe, but all things, material and immaterial, have all found their origin in Jesus. So here's one of our beautiful paradoxes, and we're going to touch on a couple of these found in the incarnation. Just to remind you, a paradox is a seemingly absurd idea or a self-contradictory statement that yet is nonetheless true. It is true. And here's one of those paradoxes. The creator who transcends his creation chooses to become part of that creation. The God who made Mary now allows himself to be born of her womb to enter into our world. Although Mary can be said to be the mother of Jesus, Jesus was not made by or made for Mary. As verse 16 tells us, all things were created by him, this baby, this child, and through him and for him. Because this child is the sovereign and the only God. Our third revelation about the child Jesus from our text is there in verse 17. 
Jesus is supreme because he is before all things. The word before here doesn't mean that Jesus actually came first. God has no beginning. So to say that Jesus is before all things as if he is the first thing is nonsensical. He is eternal. He is without origin. And so when verse 17 tells us that Jesus is before all things, it means that he is supreme in all things. He is the greatest. He is the highest. He dominates all things. He is before all things because he is above all things. There's no one to challenge his power or his authority. No one to rival his glory or his majesty. Even as this infant child is cradled in the arms of his mother, he is the ultimate of all things. His sovereign dominion is absolute and unrivaled. Can you see the wonder of this as you picture Mary in your mind holding this child? What mystery, what beauty. And our fourth point drives this all home by telling us in verse 17 that in him all things hold together, which is to say that Jesus is the sustainer. As Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. You could spend a lot of time pondering that verse. Think about this. Even as Jesus was there in his mother's arm, feeding from her breast for sustenance as a real human child, because in that moment he still remained fully God, it was the very mind of that child that actually kept all of the atoms of the universe in their proper place. Now, in one sense, we could say of this child, because he is a true human boy, that he knows nothing as an infant, right? Like any true human, he must grow to understand things and to learn to speak and talk. But in another sense, we can say, in the mind of this child exists still all of the wisdom that can ponder the complex quantum physics that God keeps in his mind to hold all of the atoms of the universe in their proper place. Now, we are so indoctrinated by philosophical materialism, naturalistic materialism, that we tend to think that the universe is self-existent, self-sustaining. But that's not true. As Hebrews chapter 1 would tell us, it is because of the mind and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, this child, that all things hold together. This baby, though frail and needy, is the one who supplies all of the needs of all created things. And again, here we see the beautiful paradox of the incarnation that the utterly independent God would choose to make himself utterly dependent upon others as he would enter into this world. The one who sustains the world now at the very same time becomes sustained in that world. Fifth, we find that Jesus is the founder of our faith and our authority in all things. If we worship 
this man, Jesus, who is also God, then we belong to the church. We are a member of the body of Christ, and Christ, therefore, is our head and our authority. In all things, then, our lives must be joyfully submitted to him in trust. And so it is not proper for us, under the authority of Christ, to keep anything to ourselves. It is not proper for us to withhold from Jesus, our authority, anything, as if he can have a portion of our lives or our hearts, but not the totality. Since by him and through him and for him, we have our very being, we are entirely his. And therefore, all that we do and all that we are and all that we have must be to the praise of his glory. As the head of the church, Jesus is Lord. And we as Christians must never be so bold or so foolish to say to him, no, Lord. Those are words that must never leave our lips or, or foul our hearts. Let no such dishonor for this God ever enter our minds to offend Jesus, who humbly became a man like us so that we would be loved and redeemed by him. You do understand the reason you are here, the reason the church exists, the reason that you are part of all of it is for his glory. We belong to the church for his great pleasure. And so to him, we would owe all of our allegiance, all of our obedience without any contest. And let me just be bold and say here, in order to remove any confusion on this point, you do not, in fact, belong to the church if Christ is not your authority. If you do not seek to obey him with wholehearted devotion, then you don't actually belong to the church. Either you are striving to make Christ your authority, and it is a striving, it is a fight, it is a labor of love, but either you're striving to make Christ your authority in all things, or you are not a child of God, because Christ is the head of the church. As verse 18 continues, we find our sixth revelation about this child Jesus. <clears throat> He's the beginning of recreation. As the head and the authority of the church then, what has Jesus accomplished for us, his people? Well, he's made us a new creation. He has won for us the resurrection from the dead. When Paul tells us here that he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, Paul is describing for us the work that Christ has done in recreation. Healing and fixing and restoring the brokenness, the ruin that we brought to God's creation by sin. See, Adam, the Bible tells us, is the first man. And tragically, through his life, Adam brought death to the world. But Jesus, in recreation, becomes the true man, the last man, and also the first real man, who through his death brings life into the world. And so Jesus is not merely the creator God who brought about the existence of the universe. He is also the recreator God who remakes all things and restores all things, making them new again, giving birth to the kingdom of eternal life through his sacrificial death. 
And here again is another paradox of the incarnation, isn't it? That the author of life would enter into the story that he wrote in order that through his death, he might again give man life. And for this reason, then we find our seventh truth concerning this child Christ, that he is preeminent. Now, this word preeminent is kind of an older word. I'm guessing that, you know, in a passing casual conversation, you have not used it recently. So let me define this word for you so that you understand it. When someone is preeminent, it means that they are distinguished above all others. To be preeminent is to rise above all others. And Christ is, in fact, distinguished above all others, isn't he? He is preeminent because he and he alone has risen from the dead of his own power and his own authority. No human has accomplished by their own power or authority what Jesus accomplished by his own power. Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, the Pope, even Moses and Abraham, take any leader from any major world religion, and you know what happened to every single one of them? They died and they stayed dead. Their power did not extend into the grave. Their teaching did not give them victory over death. But Jesus is preeminent because he rose from the dead. And although Christ was born a frail child, needing this constant care of his mother as an infant, he came into this world as God with, the Bible tells us, the power of an indestructible life. And so by virtue of his resurrection power, Jesus then surpasses all men in greatness and glory because he is God in the flesh. Which takes us to our eighth point, and this point hammers home for us that in this man, Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, I confess, this is a real mind twister. Like, there is no illustration or anything that I could say that could make this more clear to you than simply this statement, that in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We have to remember that although Jesus became man, in becoming man, his nature as God was in no way changed or diminished. So even as Christ lay there cradled in his mother's arms, think about this. Present as a man in that singular place, because Jesus is God, he remains omnipresent transcendent. Even as Christ babbles and splutters, needing to learn to speak coherent words, unknowing how to use language, he remains the omniscient God who knows all things. Even as Christ was swaddled and unable to crawl or walk, he remains the omnipotent God with all power. And so again, we meet another paradox that in this infant child, Jesus, utterly helpless and codependent, still we are gazing upon the infinite and ever-glorious fullness of God himself. 
As verse 19 tells us, God was pleased to humble himself in this way. Do you ever feel pleased when you're humbled, when you become undignified? Imagine the eternal God being pleased to find himself needing to have his diaper changed by his mother. That is the kind of humility our God has. And he did it willingly, unreluctantly. He was delighted to satisfy himself by becoming meek and modest and lowly in the arms of Mary. So finally, the ninth point, that this child Jesus as God is our peacemaker. I'm not doing too bad, right? Nine points. You thought this was going to be, you thought this was going to be like a three-hour sermon. This child Jesus as God is our peacemaker. Now this is a, another very important point for you to understand here. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Look at the world around you, though. How full of peace is it? Doesn't seem so full of peace, right? I mean, you know, wars in Ukraine and in the Middle East, in the Holy Land, and conflict and strife everywhere. The world is just as ugly as it has ever been. There's no peace in the world. So then what does this verse mean? Let us think about it to understand it rightly. Verse 20 tells us Christ brought peace by the blood of his cross. Now the real problem with the world is not that there is not peace between men, that there's not peace on earth. Humanity's great problem is that humans have no peace with God. That's the fundamental problem. And this is the great problem which Christ has come to solve through his blood. He came to make reconciliation between God and man by spilling his own blood. And I hope that you understand this. I don't know how often actually an assertion like this is said in churches, but let me say it. Because God is a holy God, he is out for blood. Do you understand that? We in our sin have wronged God, and God in his justice is full of wrath at our rebellion. And so the Bible tells us in multiple places, like Isaiah and Revelation, that God will tread the winepress of his wrath. And humanity are the grapes that he will crush underneath his feet. And he will spill his blood upon the, or spill the blood of humanity upon the entire earth as he brings justice to bear upon the evil of humanity. And if you doubt me, go read Revelation chapter 14. And then pick up again in chapter 19 of Revelation. There is no peace on earth because man remains at war with God. That's the problem. And this is a war that humanity is destined to lose in the most graphic and violent of ways. Just like the cross itself is graphic and violent. But thanks be to God that he has been born to us in Jesus the Savior that there might be peace 
on earth. Because through the spilling of the blood of Christ on the cross, God himself will bear all the guilt of our sin. And God will be appeased so that his wrath is no longer ours to bear. This is the peace that Jesus has brought with the blood of his cross. Peace with God for all who look to him to be saved. And friends, you're never going to find peace on earth. If you're trying at that task, you're never going to find it. It's not possible. But you can find true peace with God. And that is a peace that will transcend whatever circumstances you might be going through. The peace of love and friendship with God that settles deeply upon the heart when you rest in the blood that Jesus has spilled for you. So we've covered our nine truths about Jesus, I think, that help us understand what it means that he is God. And I'm so thankful for Colossians chapter 1 that lays this out for us and tries to get it in our heads, who we are thinking about when we think about Jesus. But maybe you wonder at this point, so what? Right? Like, Grady, aren't sermons supposed to be application? What am I supposed to do with this? What should I do now? And I would say to you, truthfully, not much. There's really not much for you to do. I don't actually want to encourage you to go from here and do much of anything except that your heart just might be turned to God in holy wonder at who Jesus is and all that he has done for you. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he says, There is more of God's glory and majesty to be seen in the manger and the cross than in the sparkling stars above, the rolling deep below, the towering mountain, the teeming valleys, the abodes of life, or the abyss of death. Let us then give ourselves up to holy wonder, such as will produce gratitude and worship and love and confidence as we think of that great mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. And so let your heart be moved to praise and to adoration over Jesus Christ our God, our eternal and ever-glorious God became man in the person of Jesus Christ, this infant baby, taking up or taking upon all of his perfections as God, all the frailty of our humanity, so that he might reconcile all things to himself. And as a result, then, we are free. We are loved. We are redeemed because God became man in Christ. So then let us marvel, let us rejoice, let us wonder, let us be glad, let us give thanks, let us give praise and glory and adoration to our God who did all of this not because he would benefit from it, but only so that you might benefit from it. Let us treasure Jesus, our great and humble Savior who is both man and God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, of course, words fail to describe these things and words fail to give you the praise and adoration you deserve for these things. All eternity will not be sufficient time 
for us to thank you and praise you and adore you for these things. But Lord, I do ask that they would not be lost on us, that we would, in fact, feel a sense of holy wonder at this child, Jesus, who is also fully God. And I pray that we would find comfort in that and confidence in that. We thank you so much for your love and your humility that you would do this incredible, astounding, inexplicable thing that we might be brought near to you, that we might have peace through the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, accept our praise and our worship and our adoration now and fill our hearts with joy over these things. In Christ's name, amen.